Yeah, welcome here. There's a lot of good stuff coming up with our um, Christmas Eve service and some other things. But my name is Pastor Jeremy. As we get uh, into the word now, I want to pray for us as we start. Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the gifts that you've given your people and the way they use them to bless and encourage your body. Lord, your sheep, uh, the sheep of your pastor. Lord, you're the good shepherd. You do all things well and you came and gave your life for the sheep as the shepherd and and now lord as your sheep we come to you to be fed and we pray that you would feed us well this morning that we'd listen uh, not just with our minds but with our hearts and be transformed by the preaching of your word lord thank you for your many good gifts to us thank you for your family your body your people the church and we pray that you would bless and feed us now in jesus name all god's people said amen Welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. If you're just joining us, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and welcome here. We're so glad you're here to worship. Um, some of you probably already see what's going on because you saw my sticky notes coming in. How many of you have done the sticky note exercise? Yeah, and there's probably a few of you are like, oh, the sticky note exercise. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do it this morning, but um, for those of you who already know what it is, you know what's going on. You know, you have a question that your facilitator is asking and trying to get everyone involved and come to consensus. And so they ask a question, for example, and say something like, I'm just making this up. What can we do to improve our communication? And then someone in the room shouts out, um, rely less on email. And so the facilitator puts it up there. And then someone else who's feeling a bit miffed after that question, he says, keep going. What can we do to improve our communication? The next person says, read our email, you know, and then the next person says something like, well, I think we should do some cool new technology. We should, you know, use an app or something like that. And then somebody else says, oh, even better. Let's start a group chat or somebody else says, let's use social media and all these things start going up on the board and eventually hopefully if things are going well in this diverging and converging process stuff starts to come together you affinitize I think that's the right word affinitize the data and you get these categories you're like oh see now we all agree now let's just say what order of importance these might be and you put them in like this, and you say, okay, now we're going to focus on this, but we don't want to forget these two things either. We all agree? Agreed? Yeah, okay, we're all agreed. Um, but as I look at this passage today, what I see is this. There's a very interesting literary genre of wisdom literature, and it feels to me, and as I read it, a bit like divergence and convergence, like he'll say... Um, in wisdom literature, for example, at one point they, in the Proverbs will say, rebuke a fool lest you become one. And then you read a little bit later and it says, don't rebuke a fool lest you become one. And you're like, how does that work? And what you have to do is understand that these are sort of general rules of thumb that apply in one situation, but often the context will determine which rule of thumb to use. And so the wisdom is discerning where you're at in that process. And so as I look at this passage, what I realize is 
it's kind of functioning in that way. Like at one point he'll talk about one subject and then he'll switch to another subject and then he'll switch to another one. So what I want to do for us today to make this all sort of come together is affinitize the data. And I'm going to approach it not just like from verse 1 through 10 chronologically, but instead what I'm going to do is group these verses together that are talking about the same subject. So they're going to be a little bit more topical in the sense that it's pulling this all together from a subject matter, a theological sort of perspective. So I'm going to start out in verse 19 of Ecclesiastes, or sorry, verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And what we're going to do is this, we're going to try to follow the approach of the author whose purpose is to compare and contrast the wise uh, and the fool. Okay, so he's going to do that through this passage and he's going to do it on three different topics. So we're going to compare and contrast the wise and the fool on three different topics. And then we're going to um, sort of ask ourselves the question, why live well? Like, what's the point? And what we'll see from this text, it actually even goes beyond the outcome. Like, the outcome is valuable, but the outcome is not guaranteed. And so we will look at the following verses, compare and contrast, just like the author does, And then ask ourselves the questions, why? Like, why should we live well? Verse 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It says this. I've also seen this example. So here's your example. It's going to be a city. This example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it. Building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though a poor man's wisdom is despised. And his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through 18. Now, what's going on here? Well, we're looking at a city. So I'm going to write that down. This is our first comparison. It's a city. And the question is, you know, how do the wise impact their city? And how, do the fool, how does a fool impact their city. And if you look at this passage, what you see is it's a dire situation. I mean, you can use it as a metaphor or an allegory or whatever you'd like. But at the end of the day, these people are in a bad spot. And maybe you're not living in a position where uh, your city is being physically attacked. But perhaps in your scenario, you feel outmanned, outnumbered, outgunned, surrounded, and in trouble. If that is the case, this is for you. 
And so in verse 14, it tells a story, and it sounds to me a little bit like something out of Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or one of these other genres. You can see that verse here up on the board, verse 14. It says, there was a little city, you know, this is a no-name place out in wherever. And there's a few people in it, a few men, they're, they're not able to fight. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. And then verse 17, here's, here's the Yoda image or the... Gandalf image in my mind there is this poor wise man now hold that text up there for just a minute now I imagine something you know my my imagination is going crazy at this point I can see little old fellow with a crickety crane and a bent over back and a large beard who's very poor and lives like a hobbit in a cave or whatever and he has no money whatsoever And yet there he is, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. And yet what you read in the same verse is that no one remembered the poor old man. In other words, you start to ask yourself the question, why live well? And you start to think, well, in a difficult situation, in a bad spot, it might lead to deliverance. But at the same time, it doesn't lead to remembrance. You do the right thing and no one remembers it. No one acknowledges it. They forget. And what difference does it make? Yet even so, this author concludes that better, it's still better, that wisdom is better than might. Why? He hasn't answered that question yet. But he goes on to say this in verse 4 of chapter 10. Martin, if you can show that one for me says, look, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offense to rest. Now, we just did verses 13 through 18 of chapter 9, but I jumped to chapter 10, verse 4, because I think verse 4 is really the principle that these verses are illustrating here's a small city and a ruler's anger has risen against it and he's going out to conquer it the temptation would be to run automatically you want to get away we're outmanned we're outnumbered we're outgunned wisdom would say run right and yet there is this quiet little old fellow in the corner who's able to deliver the city and what this says is that calmness will lay great offense to rest You see, in our conflict, most of the time we assume that the way to meet difficulty is with matching intensity. If there's a threat, we got to rise to that level. We got to raise it. We got to up it even in order to win. But what this text actually says is don't leave your place, stay calm. And in fact, the meek will inherit the earth. Calmness will lay great offense to rest. In other words, the way to win in this conflict or in this intense situation is to be still and know that God is God. Look, undercut it. Don't match it. Undercut, don't match. When the intensity level rises... Wisdom says to undercut rather than match. I want to ask you this question this morning, and this is what the wise does. So the wise, the wise will save their city 
by remaining calm and placing their faith in God. The fool, we'll see what they'll do to the city here in just a second. But the point of the application in this spot is to undercut rather than match. Now, let me ask you this question. How are you doing with that? When thrown into conflict and and your emotions began to well up inside of you and you feel that intensity, maybe it's defensiveness, maybe it's not that, maybe it's something else, I don't know, but you start to just feel that intensity growing inside of you. How are you doing? Is it fight or flight? Or is it calmness that will lay great offenses to rest? First application in this section is the wise. The wise will save the city. They will use calmness and faith to lay great offense to rest. The fools, on the other hand, in verse 5 of chapter 10, here's what they do. Chapter 10, verse 5, it says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And there's an interlude. And then this same topic continues in verse 16. This is what the city looks like that has foolish appointments. It says, woe to you, O land, when your child is a king and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not drunkenness. Here's what happens to the city where the fool appoints other fools. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. In other words, the wise save the city, the fools destroy it. The fools destroy it. It it falls apart. They appoint people like themselves to positions of power. And all of a sudden, things around them begin to crumble. How many of you have seen this in our world? Where people are put in positions of power... And they appoint people like themselves, and then things around them begin to crumble. Fools appoint fools, and the foundations begin to to fall. So the wise save the city, the fool destroys the city. That's the first one. The second one has to do with your words in verse 12. Your words in verse 12. Now on the wise, it's very short. It doesn't say a whole lot. But on the fools, it speaks for a while. Let me write this down real quick. Words is number two. It says in verse 12, the words of a wise man win him favor. But now it switches into the fools. The lips of the fools consume him. Beginning of his of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man can know what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So the words of the wise, they win favor, or you could say they build up. They build up and encourage. And the words of the fool, on the other hand, they tear down. So similar to the city, 
which is either saved by the wise or destroyed by the fool, so too the words to the people either build up, that's what the wise do, or tears down. That's what happens when the fools are in power. Look at verse 20 real quick. Here's the principle that guides this one. It says this, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. You've probably heard that, that sort of st- statement or saying before a little bird told me, guess where they get it right here. That's from Ecclesiastes. The idea is this, whatever is in your heart, eventually that's going to come out. It's going to come out. And so even if you're disciplined enough to lock jaw tight and not say anything, eventually your body language or your emotions or your mumbling under your breath or something is going to come out. And then somebody or someone or something somewhere will hear it and it will go where you don't want it to. And so you may think to yourself, well, I know what to do then. Just just shut up. Don't say anything. And that's pretty good because indeed Ecclesiastes says, do not be rash with your mouth. But then it goes on to say, nor let your heart be hasty to utter words before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, from the wellspring of the heart proceeds the words of the mouth. So what the principle here is this. The the wise, man, they're taking care of their heart. And because their hearts are good, what happens is when they speak, they build up. But the fools are not taking care of their hearts. And as a result, when they speak, they tear down. The source determines the outcome in this scenario. And so when it comes to the words, even guard your thoughts. Because the thoughts of your heart, meditations, thoughts of your head, meditations of your heart, that's what's going to determine what comes out. So let me ask you again the same question. How are you doing with your words? How are you doing with your words? Well, well, fine with my words. Okay, well, how are you doing with your heart? I mean, even if you're not saying anything, more than likely people probably pick up on what's going on there. You walk away and you're like, that's a pretty good indication of what's going on. How is your heart? How are your words? Are you playing the game of the wise or the fool? And finally, number three, their efforts, their efforts. You could call this efforts. You could call it investments. You could call it a lot of different things. But what is the outcome of their actions? Here's what it looks like in verse 8 of chapter 10. Sorry, let's go back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Verse 1, chapter 11. It says this, the wise... Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place 
Here the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What in the world is going on there? Well, essentially it's this. Um, if you just read it from a economic or monetary perspective, you would say, oh, I know what this is. This is diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because if you do, your investment might go belly up and then you're ruined. You want to diversify your investments. That way, at the end of the day, even though you can't always predict the outcome, you've got enough things spread out that something good is about to happen. And that's true from a long-term investment standpoint. But what is true in that world is based on the reality of this world in which many things are unpredictable. And what's happening here is God is saying that from the outcome of faith, not from greed or desire for gain, but just from a reality of understanding the way that this broken and fallen world works, you as a wise person have to know that when you do something, it's not always going to work out. And that's not a reason for cursing God and dying. That's not a reason for going after pleasure. It's not a reason for uh, hedonism or nihilism or any of these other isms. But instead, it's a reason to trust in God and by faith diversify your efforts. And so do different things. Try. Make an effort. In verse 6, it says this. So then in the morning... Sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both like will be for good. Look, we don't know. Throughout this series, you've seen the author point out how many times we cannot find out. We cannot find out. We cannot find out the way of God. There is mystery in the universe. And because we cannot predict that, We have to prepare to live wisely within that reality. So the wise would diversify their efforts driven by faith. Not by fear, but by faith. So I'm just going to say diverse. Diversify their efforts driven by faith. The fool, on the other hand... They set their own trap. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. It says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before its charm, there is no advantage to the charmer. In other words, the fool is not driven by faith, but instead they're driven by fear, and this fear causes them to want to take the shortcut. They're going to lay a trap. They're going to try to set something up that will end up for their benefit, but it'll actually turn out for their harm. Verse 8 says, you know, if he digs a pit, he'll fall into it himself. Or a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Maybe they set up some sort of scheme and they're trying to um, get around the edges. But as it turns out, somewhere along there, the foul play will catch him who participates in it. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, it says, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If a serpent bites before its charm, there is no advantage to the charmer. Shortcuts don't pay off. Well, the short of it is, it's long, hard work, and anytime you try to lay a scheme, set a trap, or go the other way, you end up hurting yourself. It just doesn't work. There are so many examples of that in life. And perhaps if you're a youth, you're sitting there thinking about all the lectures you've had from mom and dad about hard work and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The reality is, your mom and dad, at least this one, doesn't always like the hard work either. But we know from the times we've tried to get around it that it ends up costing us more than having done it the right way at the start. And so we're just telling you, hey, don't dig your own pit. Don't lay your own trap. Sharpen the axe and make sure you take your time to get it right before it's done. Otherwise, you end up playing the role of the fool. So the wise are driven by faith and they diversify. The fool is self-defeating. The fool is self-defeating because they try to take the shortcut and get it done on their own and they end up hurting themselves. Now this alone, as you look at this contrast, I think should be enough to convince us that we'd rather be wise than foolish. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. We'd rather save a city than destroy a city. We'd rather build someone up than tear them down. We'd rather have diverse efforts or investments rather than self-defeating efforts or investments. But at the end of the day, as you read Ecclesiastes, what you find out is sometimes even then it doesn't pay off. And you're like, what? I, I, I did it all right. Like I I tried to use my words and I tried to have diverse investments and I wanted to save the city. And yet the, the wise little guy is forgotten and the rain falls on the just and the unjust and the race is not to the writ or to the swift. Let's see here. Where is, I have this verse. I'm going to read it right. All right, 911. The race is not to the swift, the battle not to the strong, the bread not to the wise, the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happens to everyone. So why? Why would I go to all the effort of being wise and thinking ahead and planning and preparing if sometimes, even then, it doesn't work out? Isn't that just vanity and chasing after the wind? The answer, I think, is this. And this is the, this is the big thing. Like if you come away with, from this book, if you come away from this study, if you come away with, from Ecclesiastes with nothing else, get this. This is the thing. And it is this. The author wants you to trust in the character of God. The author wants you to trust in the character of God. Why would we do this? Here's the answer. Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. Look, here's how Ecclesiastes works. It starts out with just tearing down all these things that we, can tr- we normally trust in. And then it says, what do you trust in? 
And the goal or the outcome of this deconstruction is to get you to trust in the character of God. But the author is going to be very honest about it and say that even when you're faithful, even when you're doing everything right, things can still go poorly. And so we have to come to a point where we accept the nature of our universe. Number one is to trust the character of God. This is the faith outlook. Trust the character of God. Number two, accept the nature of our universe. Accept the reality. We've been given a certain portion. We need to accept it. We've been, you know, given a certain race to run. We need to run that race. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever struggles are before us, whatever the nature of our reality is, we have to Just get to a point where we say, yeah, this is the way it's going to be for me. It doesn't mean that injustice is good or bad things are good or anything like that. But it means here's where we're at and therefore this is what we have to deal with. This is my portion. This is my lot. This is my race to run. I have to accept that. And then within those limitations, within those constraints, within that reality, I have to learn how to live wisely. Okay, if God is faithful, and if this is the nature of my reality, then how do I live? How do I live in such a way as to build up and not tear down, to make things better and not make them worse, to diversify my other efforts in faith, knowing that not everything's going to work out, but believing that God is good. Number one, we trust the character of God. Number two, we accept the nature of the universe. Number three, we live wisely within those constraints And number four, then, we hope eternally. We hope eternally. Now, why did I say it that way? I purposely said, I didn't say hope springs eternal. Because I don't mean that. And I don't want that. What I want is that we go back to number one. And we hope in God. We hope in the eternal. Here's the deal. Our faith is not in the outcome. It's in the person. Our faith is not in the outcome, it's in the person. Ecclesiastes has shown us the outcome is not guaranteed. It can seem arbitrary and we don't always have it figured out. But our faith is not in the outcome, it's in the person. Generally speaking, living wisely does put you in a much better place. And from just a hedonistic perspective, wisdom is better. But it's not a guarantee. The only guarantee... Is in Christ. Why should we live well? Because God is faithful. That's the only reason. And if you can trust, if you can believe, if you can get to a point where you believe that God is faithful, that He will judge everything, that He will resurrect the righteous and give them eternal life and reward them and give them the blessing and privilege of His presence forevermore, then you can say, Yeah, I guess this is worth it. And living well makes sense. The only reason to live well is because God is faithful. Trust the character of God, accept the nature of our universe, live wisely, and hope in him. Why? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see dimly in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am fully known. The verse we started with today from the candle 
And that will serve as our benediction here in a minute is this. 1 Peter 1, 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you will receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why should we live faith well? Because God is faithful. Father, we thank you and praise you for today. Thank you for Jesus, your son, who is faithful to us. Lord, help us to be faithful to him. Even when we can't put it all together, even when it doesn't make sense. Lord, help us to be faithful to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.